This week, step back in time into a zoo of human ancestors. About, say, 30,000 years ago, we had Neanderthals around, we had Denisovans around, and probably other forms that are yet to be discovered. And where did the moon come from? The leading theory for how the moon formed is that another roughly Mars-sized planet collided with the early Earth. Now, this collision ejected material into orbit around the Earth, and it's from that material that the moon then coalesced. That and other competing theories of moon-making coming up. Plus, scientists put themselves under the microscope with an attempt to model the peer review process. This is The Nature Podcast for December the 5th, 2013. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Kerry Smith. The human family tree has gained a few new branches in recent years, thanks to DNA from our extinct relatives. We now have genome sequences from Neanderthals, the big-bodied species that roamed Europe until about 30,000 years ago, as well as the Denisovans, a mysterious population identified by just a couple of teeth and a tiny finger bone found in a southern Siberian cave. Now, Svante Perbo, the molecular geneticist whose team produced these two genomes, has decoded DNA from a much older fossil, a femur dug out of a Spanish cave. The fossil may belong to an earlier ancient human species known as Homo heidelbergensis or to very early Neanderthals. Pabo told reporter Ewan Calloway about the find, but first he described how abundant such species used to be up to a few thousand years ago. The last 30,000 years of human history or so is quite unique in that modern humans are alone on this planet now. Until that time, about, say, 30,000 years ago, we had Neanderthals around, we had Denisovans around, we probably had other forms. We know we had this Homo floresiensis in Indonesia around, and probably other forms that are yet to be discovered. So we've got this uh, Lord of the Rings-type world with all these different uh, hominins around. I mean, do you have any clue what these things looked like, how, how they interact? Are these like populations of chimps? I mean, any, any picture of, of, of Europe and Asia around this time? Well, so, of course, we know quite well what Neanderthals looked like, for example. They were quite a bit robuster than modern humans at, at the time, quite more muscular and probably more adapted to living in a harsh northerly climate. For the Denisovans, the fascinating thing is that we know next to nothing about how they looked so far. We have their genome, and we have two teeth of them. And those teeth are huge by comparison to both Neanderthal teeth and modern teeth. So the only thing we can almost say is they must have had been very big, at least having big mouths, if you like, but probably big bodies. So these other forms of humans did look quite different from modern humans, but they were not chimp-like. They were a lot more human-like than chimp-like, of course. That sounds like quite a busy scenario with all these different hominins roaming around. Uh, What do the newest results tell us? We, two years ago, developed a new, very sensitive way to retrieve small amounts of damaged and degraded old DNA. And we have used this to produce, for example, a high coverage genome from a Denisovan and from a Neanderthal, but now we have applied it to much, much older remains. And these are remains from Spain in a site called Cima del Huesos, which are around 400,000 years old. So this is five or ten times older than any Neanderthal remains we have studied so far. 
And we've been able to retrieve an almost complete mitochondrial genome from these hominin remains and see how their mitochondrial DNA is related to those of Neanderthals, Denisovans, and modern humans. This hominin from Spain, what is it? Is it a Neanderthal? Is it some other species? Most people would call it Homo heidelbergensis and would think that it's a direct ancestor of Neanderthals. What we now find, to our big surprise, I must say, is that its mitochondrial DNA is actually related to that of Denisovans. So the sister group of Neanderthals that we discovered a few years ago that lived in East Asia. So this really raises more questions than it answers anything, really. It sort of suggests that there is some connection between these very early hominins in in Europe and populations in Asia. That's a real head-scratcher because you've got this thing that is 300, 400,000 years old in Spain, might be uh, an ancestor of the population that gave rise to Neanderthals in Europe, yet mitochondrially on its paternal lineage, it's more closely related to these things all the way over in Asia. How do you explain that? I, I just don't get it. What we find is that the mitochondrial genome of this individual is related to Denisovans, but it's, of course, not very close to Denisovans. So it's possible that we're simply so far back in the history of these populations that we're close to the population that was ancestral to all these individuals. Another alternative is that this ancestral group actually interbred with something much older, something like Homo erectus or so, and obtained its mitochondrial DNA from them. That's also a possibility, and that's something we want to try to resolve in the future. How can we tease apart these two different scenarios? So the ultimate answer to this is to get nuclear DNA from these remains, to be able to see in the nuclear genome in the vast bulk of our genetic material, is it more closely related to Neanderthals or to Denisovans or or to modern humans? So we are working on that. That's a big, big technical challenge. But I do hope that we, within a year or something like that, might be able to have enough nuclear DNA to really answer these questions. That was Thoroughly Modern Human Ewan Calloway talking to researcher Svante Perbo. Still to come in the research highlights, sharks that never forget, and the volcanic eruptions that led to the biggest extinction of all time. But first, for billions of years, planet Earth has had a constant companion, the moon. But just how our friendly satellite got there is a mystery. Scientists think there was a giant crash, and the resulting debris melded together to form the moon. But they disagree over the size of the impactor and the effect it had on Earth's rotation. Their theories also have to account for the striking similarity in what the Earth and Moon are made of. Moon expert Robin Cunnup has written a comment piece outlining the best theories, and our newest reporter Lizzie Gibney gave her a call. The Moon actually has an enormous impact on us and our planet. I mean, this, this extends from everything from uh, our daily tides that are due to the Moon to an effect that people largely may be unaware of, and that is that the moon stabilizes the variation in the tilt of our North Pole. If you take our current Earth, and if you were suddenly to remove the moon, our spin axis would vary over many tens of degrees. And it's quite possible that we would still have life on our planet, 
but it would be a vastly different planetary climate than what we have now. Maybe you can tell me about what we think, what the canonical explanation is for the origins of the moon. The leading theory for how the moon formed is that another roughly Mars-sized planet collided with the early Earth as the Earth was finishing its formation about four and a half billion years ago. Now, this collision started the Earth rotating with a very fast rate, and the collision also ejected material into orbit around the Earth, and it's from that material that the moon then coalesced. And this impact has been favored because it explains a number of the features of the system beautifully. It gives the right mass. It places enough material into orbit to form a lunar mass moon. It also explains why the moon is lacking in iron compared to the Earth, because in these types of collisions, the iron core from the impacting planet merges with the Earth, and the material that's placed into orbit is primarily iron-free. And it also gives the Earth the right initial spin rate to be consistent with our 24-hour day we have today. Well, that sounds like quite a nifty model that explains a lot. So what's the problem with that? So the canonical impact explains the, the spin rate of the Earth, the mass of the Moon, and the Moon's lack of iron. But there's a very large fly in the ointment. If you compare the lunar rocks to the rocks in the upper layers of the Earth, they are extraordinarily similar. But interestingly, that is not consistent with the canonical impact, and here's why. It turns out in the canonical impact, when you have an impact by a Mars-sized object, the debris that's ejected into orbit from which the moon then forms, that debris originates from the impacting planet rather than from the Earth. Now, that could produce a moon with the same composition as the Earth if the impactor had had the identical composition to the Earth. That is an extremely improbable event. And so this has been the major a stumbling block in the canonical impact. So are there any models out there that would lead us to end up with a moon that is made of very similar things to the Earth? About a year ago, there were two new classes of impacts identified that would leave the Earth with a very rapid spin with a, maybe a two or two and a half hour day after the impact, but could produce a debris disk around the Earth with the same composition as the Earth. The first new type of impact uh, was proposed by Chuck and Stewart, and it involves the collision of a somewhat smaller planet, a sub-Mars-sized planet, into an Earth that was already rotating with a very rapid two-hour day before the moon-forming impact due to a previous large impact. And that small impactor acts almost like a bullet to, to blast off Earth material into orbit. The second type of impact uh, I proposed in a companion paper uh, at the same time. And this impact involves the collision between two objects which are similar in size. So each of the colliding planets contain about half of the Earth's mass. And in this symmetric type of impact, the end result of the collision is a disk and planet that can have equal compositions. But here again, there's a twist, and that is that both of these models leave the Earth with about a two to two and a half hour day. So they then require slowing down the rotation rate of the Earth after the moon forming impact because we still ultimately have to explain our 24 hour day. So it sounds like quite a lot of this is still speculation. What kind of research do we need to do to, to come up with an answer? Well, there are a couple key pieces 
of the puzzle here that, that we need to figure out. The first is we don't really have a very good understanding of what happens between uh, the time this debris is ejected into orbit around the Earth and when that material coalesces in the, into the moon. And why this is important is it's that phase of the evolution of this disk around the Earth that sets the moon's initial chemistry, for example. We also need to, to whatever extent possible, increase the precision of comparisons between lunar and terrestrial materials. Right now we think that the moon and the Earth are identical in their oxygen isotope composition to measurement precision, but would they really be identical if that precision were increased by a factor of 10? We don't know. And that's a critical question that could help um, also distinguish between the models. That was Robin Canop talking to reporter Lizzie Gibney. Now it's time for the research highlights, read by Kerry. Acid rain and a depleted ozone layer probably contributed to the greatest extinction Earth has ever seen. It happened around 250 million years ago, killed most of the species living at the time, and set the stage for the rise of the dinosaurs. Geologists think that massive volcanic eruptions in Siberia might be linked. Researchers in the US looked at gases trapped in Siberian lava. They calculated that the magma emitted enough carbon dioxide and sulphur dioxide to turn rainfall into acid. Other gases may have chewed away at the protective ozone layer. Add that to greenhouse warming and you've got a catastrophe on your hands. Read more in Geology. Elephants don't forget and it turns out some sharks don't either. Lemon sharks return to their place of birth to have babies. Researchers in the US collected DNA from lemon sharks living near the Bahamas. Six female sharks that were born there later returned to have their own kids. The sharks were faithful to particular nursery areas within the islands. It's the first time this behaviour has been seen in any shark species and suggests that fishing should be limited in shark-infested nurseries. Find that paper in Molecular Ecology. The news chat is just around the corner, but first, the lofty goal of science is to seek the truth. It does so primarily by experimenting, but as some of you may know from bitter experience, hanging up your lab coat and finishing an experiment is only half the battle. The results are then put in front of the scientific community and debated. In this way, so the theory goes, scientific knowledge can be self-correcting. The gatekeeper of these mechanisms nowadays is the peer review system, where experts help select which papers are published where. But scientists aren't perfect, and mistakes still make their way through the gaps. Marcus Munafo from the University of Bristol and his colleagues set out to build a model of how opinions are formed and spread. Jeff Marsh spoke to Marcus, first wondering how scientists get things wrong. After all, aren't they supposed to be lovers of rationality and objectivity? We all should be and we're trained to be. The reality, of course, is that we're also human and we all have our own pet theories. We become very excited about our own results. We are rewarded if we publish in high-profile journals. We're rewarded if we obtain grant funding and therefore subject to various pressures which shape our behaviour. OK, so your aim here then was to try and assess the role of the peer reviewers. Tell me briefly how you did that. Well, so we created a mathematical model of 
the peer review process. And one of the key components that we wanted to look at was the extent to which people used their prior beliefs about a particular finding when judging whether or not a study should be published. So on the one hand, you could imagine instructions for authors which say, don't allow your personal opinion to come into your decision-making process. Look at the largely objective characteristics of the manuscript that you're reviewing, whether the methodological details are appropriate and so on. And then you can imagine another scenario where you more explicitly ask people, in addition to that, also take into account your own belief about whether or not the results are actually likely to be credible or true. And I guess the question on everyone's lips is, which model worked best in generating ideas that were closer to the truth? So one of the interesting things about this was that even though we assumed in our model that scientists were rational and attempting to iterate towards a better understanding of nature and the truth, if you like, that introducing a degree of subjectivity, in other words, allowing them to use this prior belief that they have about whether or not the result is likely to be true is actually the optimal strategy. And the reason for that is simply that by doing so, that allows more information to be introduced into the peer review process, that if you constrain people by requiring them to be too objective, you're actually uh, restricting the information flow. You mentioned in your paper this phenomenon of herding. First of all, what is that? And secondly, is, is this subjectivity kind of counteracting that? So herding is essentially the extent to which people use the behaviour of other people to guide their own behaviour. And there are rational reasons for doing so. In the absence of other information, it makes sense to rely on what other people are doing to guide our own behaviour. But it also raises the potential problem that people might jump on the wrong bandwagon, if you like. And so in terms of the peer review process itself, how would you alter that in a way that could introduce a little bit more subjectivity? And what rules would you change? Well, we wouldn't necessarily say that any rules need to be changed. There's variability at the moment in the extent to which people use their own subjective judgment in making a decision. So one change could be to make that requirement more explicit in instructions to reviewers. But I think focusing solely on the peer review process misses the opportunity to think about other ways in which we can introduce other channels of communication, if you like. Several journals, including Nature, have a comment facility so that you can comment on the online version of the article post-publication peer review, and all of that potentially can reveal more information and uh, act against incorrect herding. Marcus Munafo there. Munafo's team aren't the first to try and model how peer review happens, but is something as complex as human judgment even possible to model? I spoke to Daniele Fanelli from the University of Montreal. People from all sorts of different fields have tried doing this, so the literature is quite dispersed. All these models, of course, make somehow the point that truth might not be discovered. So the fact that this model concludes this as well shouldn't really surprise us. The question is to what extent the assumptions that the model makes are both simple and realistic enough that we can use this model to make inferences about, for example, the conditions under which herding might be more or less likely to occur. My stance on this particular model is that these assumptions indeed are not very realistic. The model assumes, for example, that the editor elicits just one peer reviewer of which he doesn't know the beliefs. And the peer reviewer is going to be immediately the next author to publish a paper on that particular topic. The authors, to be fair, in the paper do say that there are limitations to the assumptions they make. And they are simply confident that these assumptions can be relaxed and would lead to the same conclusions. I would like to see that done before being sure about it. 
So do you think that the results of this paper are going to influence the way we actually do peer review? The scepticism that me and probably a lot of colleagues might have about a paper like this should not be an argument not to do such studies, but it is an argument not to take them too seriously, if you like, at the moment and wait for further replications, further studies, and then evaluate whether the picture is applicable enough. News time now, and joining me in the studio is news editor David Ray. Hi, David. Hi, now. So first, we're heading to Iran. Yeah, I think on the on the back of uh, big events last at the end of last month, uh, where the the six world powers uh, called the P five plus one, which are basically members of the UN Permanent Security Council and uh, and Germany signed a, a, an agreement with with Iran about their nuclear capabilities, and they've basically agreed Iran has agreed to stall what the work they're doing there on on all of its nuclear work on weapons and uh, civil power in return for some easing of sanctions, which are obviously a big issue in Iran. There's an enormous amount of delayed economic sanctions put on Iran, and it's basically crippled its economy. And that was a great peg for us to have a little bit of a look at the situation there and as far as these sanctions are hurting science. And one of the big areas that we found was that health and health supplies in particular uh, are coming under enormous pressure because of the sanctions. So how might this change in sanctions affect the way that people in Iran access health care? The difficulty Iran has is not so much that these health supplies are under sanction, they're not. Uh, very clearly, the UN says that you can't sanction uh, sort of, you know, important medicines. But the people in Iran can't find the channels they need, the financial channels especially, and banks that will deal with them to ensure that they can buy these supplies. And it, it's a big issue because if a bank says that, you know, you can't get the cash to buy these medicines and they can only get them from the US, for example, then of course Iran can't import them. So it's actually been quite clever. It's, it's it developed an enormously successful domestic drug-making business. About 90% of its medicines are made in, in Iran. But obviously those 10% are very important and are often quite sophisticated medicines like cancer treatments and, and whatever else. And without access to the, the, the sort of financial channels it needs to import these, that those medicines simply aren't getting there. Patients are, especially children, are actually dying because of this. And now in return for reducing their their nuclear research or their nuclear capabilities, these sanctions are being eased. Does that mean they're going to be able to start finding these financial channels to buy drugs from other other places? It's an excellent question. I think, I mean, obviously the deal that was stuck at the end of last month wasn't specifically focusing on anything, but health may well benefit. But I think more importantly, the the other work that's being done, particularly lobbying uh, by, for example, this researcher, um, whose name is Gorgi, uh, he's written to the UN, to Ban Ki-moon, to sort of say, can you help us? And uh, so the UN is looking into it. The US earlier this year actually eased um, sanctions in this particular area on health and things to make sure that they could, uh, Iran could get a more stable supply and that businesses such as, you know, big banks could actually deal with them for these uh, health needs in particular. And, And what does this mean in terms of their nuclear capabilities? This is a big question that's been surrounding Iran for quite a long time. Is this going to help sort of smooth out Iran's relationship with the rest of the world? I think it's early days. I think, as the, our nuclear experts would say, it, it's unsure exactly how it'll pan out, and nothing comes into force till January anyway on this. So the Iranians are still busy beavering away, as far as I understand. Um, but but it could well be that it's a six-month stall or sort of freezing of their nuclear activity while further negotiations go on. So I think the the sort of future looks quite bright for the easing of sanctions more more generally. But you know, no one knows actually whether this deal will work out. To be honest. So from nuclear powers to genomics and museums. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, possibly a lot of researchers in science will ask themselves every day when they go into the lab is how much is their equipment worth? Obviously using very valuable equipment, and that's the sort of monetary value they can place on it. But does the, any of the stuff they're using actually have a historical value? Could, in the next few years or 10, 50 years, could they see any of the equipment they use on a day-to-day basis, perhaps in a museum for people to look at and marvel at? And this is a question that a sort of collaboration of science museums across the world um, has asked themselves. And in particular, they wanted to focus on genomics because it's been such a hugely sort of advancing field in the last 15 years and stuff that was done 15 years ago is now basically archaic in the sort of scale of things. So this museum wants to collect genomic instruments in particular and and store them and, uh, and make them available for people to look at. So potentially things that only 10, 15 years ago that were being used to devise the human genome are now going to be sitting in a museum for people to look at because they're just so outdated now. Excellent example. I mean, the the sort of sequencing of the human genome was obviously something that took, you know, I think it was a year, wasn't it, or or longer than 10 years, in fact. And uh, now that can be done, you know, in a matter of hours. And machines that were sort of uh, trailblazing this technology in 1998 are now so out of date that, of course, they cannot function at all in in a modern lab um, or they'd have no place in a modern lab anyway. So they're... I think that's the interesting thing about genomics and why these, this collaboration of science museums is focused on it is because of the sort of such a fast pace of development. But I mean, the difficulty they have is that often these machines aren't particularly sexy looking. You know, I mean, I think there's a, we've got a quote in there, a guy saying it looks like a dishwasher. So, you know, again, is that another reason that once these machines are outdated, the people who use them just think, well, I'm going to throw that out. It's just, uh, you know, it looks like a dishwasher. So they're sort of that their point is that they want to find these machines, you know, whatever cupboard they're in or whatever they've been disposed of and make sure that they're kept for posterity. Does this mean that some labs might be able to raise some much-needed funding from selling off their old, you know, bits of outdated kit? That's an excellent question, and I think one uh, that the Science Museum in London in particular has sort of been uh, looking at, and the fact that they, as soon as they put something in their museum, its, it's value enormously increases because, you know, that, that's the way these things go. Um, so I think it, it could possibly be, if there's the money out there to buy these things, I think, yes, there, there could be a sort of monetary you know, benefit to them selling, selling machinery, which they thought was completely useless now. Does this sort of set the scene for some very fast turnaround museum exhibits? Because, I mean, technology is developing pretty quickly. At the moment, you know, an iPod from 2004 is pretty outdated. Does that mean that should be sitting in, in a museum for people to see? I certainly don't think it's um, it, it's just, you know, genomics that's, that's suffering this enormous advance. There's many other parts of uh, science. Thank you very much for that, David. And you can read both of those news stories at nature.com forward slash news. That's all for now. Next week, learning longevity lessons from pond scum. In the meantime, for your monthly dose of mind and brain news, check out Neuropod. That's at nature.com slash neurosci slash neuropod. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Noah Baker. <laughs> <laughs>